Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I'd like to begin today by thanking Debbie S. and Matthew R., both of whom made a donation to uh, help with the expenses here in the salon. And I thank both of you very much for your kind support. Now, uh, if you listened to my podcast before the one just previous, you heard me read a chapter from my novel, The Genesis Generation, in which I describe one of the wonderful Venice Beach salons that were organized and led for over eight years by the wonderful Kathleen. And in my fictional recreation of those events, I pointed out that these gatherings weren't all feathers and pudding. At times, they could uh, be quite contentious uh, while still remaining civil. Well, guess what? I just came across an old recording that I made at one of these salons, and I'm going to play it for you now so that you can get just a little better understanding of how wide-ranging the discussions in that funky little house could become. What we're about to listen to is a gathering that was held sometime after the large celebration in Basel, Switzerland, to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the birth of Dr. Albert Hoffman, the discoverer of LSD and other equally interesting compounds. The two main speakers at this salon were Robert Forte and Myron Stolaroff, both of whom had given presentations at Dr. Hoffman's celebration a few weeks before. Now, I don't have the exact date of this salon, but it would most likely have been sometime in February or March of 2006. The main focus of the evening was to be a reading by Myron of the talk that he gave in Basel. But, as you will hear, it didn't take long for the discussion to range far from Myron's beautiful presentation, which uh, I believe was one of Myron's very last public appearances. And so now let's relive that wonderful evening and listen for ourselves how a conversation can move from the celebration of the life of Dr. Albert Hoffman to theories about the Kennedy assassination, propaganda, and other mind control techniques. <laughs> Welcome to the salon. So who else was in Switzerland with us? Gene. Is that all? You guys missed the event of the century, I would say, huh? I should say, I never saw anything put on so effectively and so carefully as these people did. The louder area. It was, it was run like a Swiss watch. <laughs> the organization was, was just superb, but the, but the power of the event, too, what was what was being celebrated, and there in Basel, you know, such a, a rich history of alchemy and, um, and you know, the birthplace of medicine, and uh, walking through these narrow streets on the way to the, to the first celebration where Albert Hoffman was honored by the, by the high society of Switzerland, by a, a whole parade of leading philosophers, uh, the presidents of Switzerland had a statement prepared for him. It was all in German, so I don't know, I didn't get the, I didn't get the meaning of it. So you, did you understand the German? Not a that? word. <laughs> so all the other senses were open to receiving the tremendous feeling of respect and, and honor that they had for their countrymen, who was a hundred years old, and who had contributed what is one of the single most important discoveries in all science and religion, really. It has not yet dawned on society, that that's what this is. But you could you could get a sense of it there, that this was being recorded with that kind of power. That's what I thought. And the wonderful part of it was, <coughs> excuse me, there were 72 presenters on the last three days, 72 presenters, and these were really well-informed people who really understood these things. So I think it's the first time that there's been a real appeal for real understanding in this field, and I think a, a great deal will come from it. Yeah, you mentioned the presenters. I was I was thinking about uh, the people that were there. This was there were about twenty five hundred people that were there, and the whole, a whole entire range of humanity. I mean, everything was represented at this conference, from from uh, you know like the most horrific kind of treatment that 
people who use psychedelic drugs receive in the law in the United States, people in prison and DEA. The Inquisition is continuing unabated, and that was very much present at this conference. But at the other end of the human experience, you know, the, the experience of being unified with, with uh, these profound mysteries, that everybody shared it, from the most, you know, acid-crazed freaks that were there to some of, some of the world's most renowned scientists and philosophers. And was, Mark? Well, I'd like to point out that here, uh, out of 2,500 people and 72 presenters, Kathleen gets two of the presenters. You know, I, think yeah. I think we're pretty honored. Here. Yeah. It was really a great, great honor to be asked to speak there. But it was also, I was thinking as I was leaving, the day before I left, you know, I, I was here a month or so before, but then I was asked to speak at the conference on Timothy Leary, who, of course, I knew very well, and I did a book about. But Timothy is also one of the most divisive figures in the whole psychedelic movement. In one sense, he kind of spawned it and popularized it and made it happen, but he's also one of the most despised by the by a certain cadre of professional researchers that also form a very major part of what these meetings are. So I tried to make sense of this in my book about him. I don't know if I did. But um, the day before I was leaving to go to Switzerland, the New York Times came out with an article about Albert Hoffman turning 100 years old, and it was this very beautiful article about him. And um, except it ends with Albert Hoffman saying that what Timothy Leary did and the popularizing of LSD came down very hard on it, that this was a crime. It says in the article, and I think, oh great! So I'm going to the conference to kind of, you know, celebrate LSD and all of its complexity and Timothy and for all of his brilliance and madness. And here's this, you know, crime. <laughs> and I thought, you know, and I got in my car and I'm driving up the coast, and the first song that comes on the radio is "Teenage Wasteland," and I thought, oh, you know, Timothy, that's what people blame him for, and that that's one of his one of his most uh, you know, one of the worst things he did, people just followed his charisma and tripped out. And, and uh, the, a lot of the government's reaction to repressing psychedelic drugs makes a lot of sense, but and a lot of it is because of Tim. But I thought I didn't want to be bringing up all this kind of downer shit at this conference. I didn't want to know what I was going to talk about. So I, my plane, this is kind of a funny story, my plane flew to Dallas first. And then it was going to go on to Zurich, and I thought, okay, so maybe I should talk about the 60s. You know, how they began really in Dallas with the assassination of John Kennedy, <clears throat> and, the, and the foisting upon the American people of this Warren Commission, a completely contrived explanation of what happened on that day. And so the, all of a sudden there's this social reality that's false, and what many people really believe is true, that Kennedy was killed as part of the military coup d'etat. And so a counterculture starts to form. And I, was gonna, I thought I would bring up this as I'm flying to Dallas, thinking about it. I get on the plane in Dallas, and um, I have to sit next to this kind of conservative Dallas businessman. And I think, oh, great, it's going to be a long flight to Switzerland. He says to me, where are you going? I said, well, I'm going to Switzerland. A friend of mine turned 100 years old. <laughs> he says, well, he kept asking me, he says, well, who's your friend? What is it? So I finally say, you know, his name is Albert Hoffman. He was a great chemist. And I kind of looked at him and I said, um, I discovered LSD. And the guy looked at him and I said, well, I thought Timothy Leary discovered LSD. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> and I said, well, I said, actually, no, it was Albert Hoffman. But I knew Timothy. I'm going to be giving a talk about Timothy Leary. And he said, well, he said, oh, that's right. He said, he said, Timothy Leary just figured out what to do with it. <laughs> I looked at him, and then that's when he said, he said, so what are you going to say about him? And I, I said, well, I'm kind of raised it. Well, this is one thing. <laughs> and he said, and then he said, he said, whoa, he said, why don't you just put LSD in the punch, and then you won't have to say anything. <laughs> <laughs> Did you take the book in? Huh? Did you take the book in? Yeah, no, he 
strength. So Dallas. So yeah, it was just incredible, and it was. Um, I thought. Um, I don't know what. I have some footage. Why don't we share this? I have a little piece of um, videotape that I shot the last day. That's unedited, but I can skip through part of it. But some of it's very cool. Why don't we take a minute and watch that? And okay, now what's someone else to say? How do we turn this? Let's see. Albert Hoffman, <clears throat> at 100 years old, is as fit and vital in his mind as, as any of us in this room. Wow. You know, he's walking with a little camera. We'll see him here in a minute. He walks with a little canes. But he is, huh? he's got to make you feel like a kid, huh? I think it was really remarkable, though, because he started off the program, the last, the three-day program, and he spoke strongly. Uh, he covered a lot of ground of, uh, from his past, and uh, it was just, and he kept talking for a long time. You know, we all thought, here's this hundred-year-old man, he's tired, <coughs> but uh, he was right up there. And very, very strong and powerful. You just had to really admire this man. The first thing he said to me, I haven't seen him in about 10 years, and he, I went up to him and he goes, Oh, Robert, my friend. And he looks at me and he goes, You look so much older. <laughs> <laughs> I said that article came out in the New York Times <clears throat> with Albert calling Leary a criminal. Actually, Albert didn't call Leary a criminal. That was the New York Times writer putting that in. And when I brought that to Albert's attention, he was very upset about it. And we, we wrote a letter, a few of us signed it, and the New York Times actually did print this um, a correction that it was a misstatement of his views, which we thought was pretty cool. And in spite of this conference being um, such a wide array, there wasn't any divisiveness, really, between the... Um, the sort of counterculture use of LSD and the um, establishment's attempts to do research with it. You know, that I don't think anything like that came out at all. Yeah. Because <clears throat> the people who were presenting had profound understanding of these of LSD and its potential and how it could be properly used, and that uh, was the atmosphere all the way through, as far as I could tell. Mm -hmm. What about being up on stage though, during the last part there? I thought that was extremely oh, awesome. With Albert, they kind of he's talking about the, the actually the closing of the of the event, and uh, <clears throat> it was in the large room, uh, old uh, fifteen hundred people, uh, the presenters, and Albert and others were up on the. Uh, Podiums, so to speak. I don't know if podium is right because it's spread out. So we were up there looking down at uh, some 1,500 or more people watching, and uh, it was a very, very moving thing. Extremely moving. Yeah, I was the last speaker at the symposium, and uh, so I'll present this to you as I did there. <clears throat> Consciousness is undoubtedly the most valuable attribute of all of human possessions. From the beginning of human presence, consciousness has continued to rise in depth, comprehension, intelligence, skills, and creativity. Can you hear me all right? No, not, not very good. <laughs> Looking at our world today, we cannot help but be enormously awed by the developments that have been made through the centuries. But for all of our growth in consciousness and incredible developments, humanity for the most part has a very long way to go to experience the higher levels of consciousness that await us. Looking at what has been accomplished over the centuries, we cannot help but be awed at the astounding progress that has been made. A short list includes many whose, 
who live in luxury in beautiful homes, plentiful food is available in a variety of forms, transportation abounds from bicycles to automobiles to airplanes, education as well as entertainment is widespread. On the other hand, there is great pain and suffering throughout the world. There are committed believers who feel that their God is the only one, which means that it's perfectly all right to kill those who hold a different belief. Large numbers of humans live in poverty and have no means of financial support. Many suffer from diseases and starvation. Education is beyond the reach of huge numbers of people. Fortunately, there have been wise ones throughout the centuries who were moved to steady life situations and find ways to overcome suffering. The Buddha is an outstanding example. Quoting from my Tibetan Buddhist teacher, Alan Wallace, author of the book Boundless Heart, the Buddha found from his own experiences that certain fundamental afflictions of the mind are the source of the, of the distress we experience. The most fundamental of these afflictions is delusions. And from this delusion, other twistings of the mind occur. Selfish craving, hostility, aggression, and a myriad of other derivative afflictions. The Buddha and the masters that followed after him found ways to train and develop the mind. Employing appropriate practices opened the door to the glorious potential of the spirit, revealing that love and compassion are the most appropriate answers. Over many centuries, Buddhists and other discoverers reached higher and higher levels of consciousness, while followers of these teachers grew and gained much reward the number of followers are still a very low percentage of the total population of our planet. The discovery of who we are and what our potential can be was given an enormous boost when Dr. Albert Hoffman came forward with LSD. Within a few years, persons all over the world began to discover enormous openings of consciousness. Vast areas of discovery opened up repressed material. Vast areas of discovery opened up. Repressed material rose to the surface, in many cases revealing sources of discomfort that could now be released. Inappropriate behavior was recognized. Talking about uh, what LSD has contributed. Uh, Inappropriate behavior was recognized. Mates, family members, and friends were seen in a greatly enhanced light. Heightened awareness opened the door to vast beauty and understanding. Most important of all, for open seekers came the realization that one is truly one with the universe, immersed in pure bliss. Unfortunately, there were many youngsters who managed to possess LSD and were anxious to explore without intelligent guidance. While naturally, while naturally peaceful, contented, open-minded youngsters found riches from their experiences, more disturbed persons encountered deeply repressed material that was very painful and difficult to resolve. This often led to minds getting twisted and, in some cases, created unbearable pain. Sometimes such persons ended up in severe depressions and even in hospitals. Many physicians and their helpers did not have the knowledge to help such persons out of their dilemma. Parents were bewildered by the changes. In America, many uninformed physicians who were unfortunately in the majority, and the punitive Federal Drug Enforcement Authority 
were happy to bitterly oppose such substances, resulting in the United States government making all such substances illegal. No research with psychedelic substances has been authorized by our Food and Drug Administration, but the possibility of research with LSD in the near future. Results are encouraging, and it is most likely only a matter of time before these valuable substances can be put into use. What is it like to enter the dimensions of higher consciousness? Dr. Hoffman has presented a great deal of information from his own personal experiences in books he has written. In my own experience, I've been unusually blessed to have the privilege of entering dimensions never previously imagined. While I have not always been able to retain the full impact of these discoveries, the impact of these openings has exposed such grandeur and vastness that the only acceptable response is incredible gratitude. Being human and still carrying burdens beyond my ability to resolve them, there still remains important work to be done. But just having experienced glimpses is enough to muster determination to press forward, for it is now clear that our real self the true I that resides in the heart of each one of us is present and available and is worth far more than anything one could possibly imagine. Entering this dimension is pure, indescribable bliss. We are one with the universe, including all other beings and creatures, and it is crystal clear that love is the only answer. It is really impossible to fully describe the remarkable essence of who we are. What I'm presenting here are simply words, and we all know how easy it is to present words in all kinds of ways. But in each of us is the remarkable core that is one with all. And hopefully, as these words are stated, something deep within yourself will recognize a new reality, a reality that is the most worthwhile thing that we can possibly realize. Hopefully, just a taste of this can reveal what is possible and is ultimately real, the only reality that really matters. I do not mean that everyone can immediately enter into this stage. I'm simply saying that just knowing this is real and that its value surpasses anything else we could possibly imagine tells us that this is the most important endeavor that we can undertake. There are no doubt many who are not ready to accept such a conclusion. There are all kinds of people in the world, and many have already determined the objectives they prefer to pursue. Fine. Pursue your choices. But ultimately, you will reach the point where you recognize that there is no other endeavor that can be as precious as unfolding your true inner self, whether in this lifetime or future lifetimes. If the goal that I've just described is accurate and therefore desirable, how can it be obtained? There is no question that the appropriate use of LSD can open many important doors. Unfortunately, many nations have outlawed LSD and similar substances. I'm ashamed to confess that the United States, supposedly the home of freedom, has been the major factor in outlawing these precious materials. And hopefully, as current research produces favorable results, the day will come when appropriate applications will be permissible. In preparation for this time, let's look at established procedures which can accomplish worthwhile goals. There are open, caring persons who naturally respond to the remarkable openings that are presented. There have been some 
who have been so enormously grateful for what they have learned in a single session that they are content to never imbibe again. Those who, who have more difficult times can be greatly helped by experienced guides. This is an area I'm very familiar with, as it took me a number of years to clear up much of the garbage I was carrying. But the greater one is suffering, the more profound is the relief of getting free. Those who have the hardest time are those who have powerfully repressed material, which the famous psychiatrist Carl Jung named the shadow. Carl Jung is no doubt one of the bravest men who ever lived, intentionally plunging deep into the unconscious to search out and resolve his inner conflicts. Shadow material can be very painful. The greatest sources of pain come from mistreatment, particularly at a young age where comprehension has not yet developed. Fear, pain, neglect, accidents, forced restrictions are all sources of such discomfort that our psyche buries these feelings deep into the unconscious. A good psychedelic experience can open us to these restricted levels and permit discharging these uncomfortable feelings. In addition, there can be feelings of joy as we contact our true inter-center. There can also be an enormous release of energy and well-being as it takes a lot of energy to hold down measurable unconscious feelings. My own experience is that as you clear up repressed material, which provides great relief, you then encounter deeper, more difficult layers. It can get so hurtful that many desire to go no further. On the other hand, complete freedom is won only by penetrating completely to the root of the discomfort. Fortunately, there are three powerful aids that can help gain resolution. The first is, as you sink deeper and deeper into your own inner self, <coughs> you are encountering your true being. The joy this provides makes it easier to confront the painful material. <coughs> Another help is suggested by Leo Zeff, one of the world's outstanding psychedelic therapists interviewed in my book, The Secret Chief Revealed. Leo tells us that if we can stop resisting and let go to the flow, the discomfort lessens, making it easier to reach complete release. This can end up, this can end up with profound peace and joy. A third helper is achieved by accomplished meditators you learn to withdraw into their true center, and from this viewpoint, look out into the spaces where the painful material is present. In the comfort of the inner self, they can observe the uncomfortable material as being on the outside, and consequently is not deeply felt. From this viewpoint, it is possible to identify the pain and find ways to resolve it. Each encounter with LSD or other similar useful substances, as created by Alexander Shulgin, should be carefully reviewed. It is extremely important that valuable discoveries which have been revealed are immediately put into effect. Those who have available access to LSD, for example, often neglect taking this step, as if one falls back it is easy to repeat the experience. I personally fell into this trap myself. As I failed to put indicated action into practice, I could feel myself regressing and would consequently imbibe again. After a while, I felt this constant going up and down very trying. It then became crystal clear 
that I was not using these valuable substances properly. It is essential to put into action what one has learned. Otherwise, our inner self can get discouraged and depression can follow. <clears throat> An excellent way to ensure that we take full advantage of what we learn is to develop a good meditation practice. <clears throat> Many people find it difficult to follow this approach as they are busy persons working for a living. And in the beginning, nothing rewarding seems to happen or develop. Here is where intention comes into the picture. With dedicated intention, one sticks to the practice until results begin to occur. Having access to LSD at appropriate times can provide openings that considerably enhance this progress of mastering meditation. I think it is enormously worthwhile to find a good meditation teacher who is skilled enough to teach essential techniques and properly monitor your progress. Such a teacher will no doubt recommend important textbooks that will support you on your journey. Excellent advice can come from the books by the Dalai Lama, by Thak Nhat Hanh, Hema Chodron, Eckhart Tolle, and my own teacher, Alan Wallace. It is often difficult to get started with meditation, but once you begin to make contact with your deep self, you begin to feel more peaceful and that something worthwhile is happening. Staying with it, one begins to find deeper relaxation, then more mental stability, and finally, clarity. As you increase your ability to hold your mind still, the door to the unconscious becomes more open and repressed material can surface, providing wonderful release. You then generate more energy, as it takes energy to hold down these repressions. If you earnestly pursue such a practice, you will find yourself developing calmness, which can progress to peace, then euphoria, and in due time, even ecstasy. And all of this can't at appropriate times enhance psychedelic explorations, which can further deepen your meditation practice. The more we progress, the more we learn to open up and resolve inappropriate material. In general, most of us don't care for pain. But I've learned that pain is an excellent teacher. I'll admit that this requires real intention. But one learns that the relief, freedom, and greater awareness makes one grateful for mustering the will which will bring such great relief. So I consider it very worthwhile to learn to sit with one's pain and stay with it until the source rises to consciousness, which is a great revelation. Then it can be dealt with. This technique is well described in Chapter 6 in Eckhart Tolle's book, The Power of Now. <clears throat> One morning a couple years ago, I was sitting on a sofa, letting my mind rest in its natural state, when I became aware of a great discomfort on my abdomen. In the past, I would have tried to draw away from this feeling, but now I knew to put my attention directly on it and hold my full attention there. All of a sudden, a sequence of, event, of events began to flow through me. The result was a much greater understanding of how things work. As the discomfort rose, I became agitated and began to look for the source of the misery. Then it struck me right between the eyes. My very clever ego began searching and searching to find the cause of the difficulty. But as soon as I did this, it became crystal clear. The ego was deliberately searching to find the cause of the discomfort. 
it seemed imperative to find someone or something on which to place the blame. Then, with an enormous impact, I realized that this creates further separation, which produces even more pain. Think about that very, very carefully, because that's very true. That's what, that's what happens to us. We want to look and find someplace else to place the blame, and we'll never get free that way. And with an enormous impact, I realized that this created further separation, which produced even more pain. It became quite clear how much pain and suffering is being created around the world, particularly for those persons who feel their own God is the only true God, and it's perfectly all right to kill those who support different religions. How is that for separation? <clears throat> Will there ever be any end to their agony as they keep creating more and more the very cause of their own pain? For the truth is, we are all one. So when we separate ourselves, we break our connection. And breaking this connection results in pain, even if we're unwilling to acknowledge it. Recently, I was blessed to experience a further element to help open the doors of realization. My very good friend, Sasha Shulgin, in years past, observed me struggle through some of the uncomfortable situations I often found myself in. He would ask me, are you above the line or below the line? Often I was too uncomfortable to reply to it. <laughs> I finally discovered that being above the line was a great deal more satisfying than being below the line. More important, I began to understand ways to stay there. I spent quite a bit of time in meditation simply being still and observing. This is often quite satisfying. But in some ways, it seemed that there were things I was missing. Heavy feeling would return. The wonderful states of clarity would fade away. There seemed no way to mean this, no way to maintain this above the line space. Then it came to me that I was not producing enough intention. It was important to focus more clearly, carefully avoiding grasping but somehow applying purpose without strain. This is the higher levels of con then the higher levels of consciousness begin to appear. Sitting on the deck of my house, looking up at the high mountains of the Sierra Nevada, and looking above the mountaintops to the crystal clear blue of the sky, I was filled with the awe and beauty of that very alive heaven. It becomes more clear all the time that there is no end to consciousness. It will expand and expand and expand, leading us to new heights, new realizations, new incredible bliss. It is patiently waiting, waiting for us to apply it the necessary intention. Since 1965, I learned that psychedelic substances were the most powerful learning tools available to mankind. Uh, complex, powerful, they're easily misused and abused. Yet for the sincere seeker, armed with honesty, courage, and an unquenchable thirst for self-discovery, I know of no other means that can so readily provide self-understanding and the ultimate nature of reality, nor that can so readily reveal the sources of most of the difficulties of the human race and the most appropriate path to their resolution. Following are some of the points that I consider to be my most valuable learning experiences. There's only seven left to go. One, many aspects of life expand as our consciousness expands. 
This includes improvement in communication and relationships, developing skills, sensory enhancement, free flow of thought, appreciation of nature, and growth in inner strength and well-being. Two, the source of life is utterly real. Those who have the strength and courage to explore this dimension will find an incomprehensible beauty almost beyond the strength of humans to behold. Three, the universe has created an inconceivable love, a vast, endless, timeless love that is in the heart of every living creature that awaits within us, within each of us, to be discovered by those who earnestly seek it. We are truly all one, and before. Our brother's, our brother's welfare is our welfare. His or her pain is our pain, and there is no private salvation. The Buddhists are right. There is no way to advance spiritually without committing oneself to the happiness and welfare of all living beings. Number five, intentionality is the bottom line. We act, create, accomplish, and love in accordance with the depth of our intention. Number six, the most glorious experience can fade away unless we take full responsibility for bringing it into realization in our lives. Last and second, gratitude and appreciation are the stair steps to heaven. conversation over here, and maybe I made a presumption there about Dallas being um, uh, kind of a dividing line between a counterculture and a culture that accepts a um, prevailing view of um, that event and certainly the, um, everything that followed. Mark, what do you think about that? You know, I don't get a chance to talk with you very much, but that's, uh, I think well, this I was is a topic that I was reflecting on why why it was so important to so many people to hold a particular theory about that event, and why none of the people I know who work directly for and with JFK believe any of that. Um, seems to me that what Myron was saying about people who need to externalize their shadow um, had some resonance for thinking about that. So you think that is the externalization of the shadow among the uh, conspiracy theorists? You think that it was some... Right. Yeah. Um, <coughs> again, I, I don't see the people who were most directly affected by it believing any of that. Um, I know, it's just so true. Anyway, I think that this is one. This is an issue that is both political and psychedelic, having to do with um, uh, how we construct and maintain our reality, and uh, and, a, and a very important role that psychedelics have played in the world um, at this time. So you and I disagree about the Kennedy assassination. See, how many? Can I just take a survey? How many people think? that the um, Warren Commission is a fabrication. It was incompetent, at, at the very least. That's a fabrication. That's all. Can I see that again? 
has very much to do with what Leary's whole ministry was and his whole turn on, tune in, drop out. That there, were, that there was a perception among these guys that were working together. That, that, the, that the, the social reality that is um, kind of put forth, legitimized and maintained in, in, a, in, a, in a very um, conscious way through propaganda techniques and so on and taking over publishing and um, universities and so forth, that they realized that this was not the, not, not sustainable. And so advocated a movement, a turn on to and drop out movement to create a whole new social reality. And that was their, that was their psychedelic ministry. That offended certain people at the time who were in there who thought that they could actually um, work within these structures of society. Houston Smith and all Soxley and people like that. But Frank and, and Tim thought, no, they want to just bust out and, and try to do it. And, and again, the premise of it is that these, that there's a real diabolical nature of the of the fabricators of the social reality. Well, they have a history of massive failure. The whole history of covert operations. From Iran to Iraq to Vietnam. I mean, they have a like a 98% failure record for what they appear once. So, so what that was true, they didn't have, they didn't have the intended effect. Well, I guess Kanye is out of Central America. Like Che Guevara and uh, Lula da Silva and uh, Hugo Chavez. Yeah, kept them right out. <laughs> oh, um. I don't know how to penetrate this problem as a social scientist or as a psychedelic activist, but it's very much on my mind. You know, like Congress, we get back to this disagreement we have about the event, say, in Dallas, which to me is just such a crucial event. Such a crucial event. Because um, immediately this new reality was created. And I believe, and Congress believes, after the 1978 or 79 Select Committee on Assassinations, that the Warren Commission was probably not right, that there probably was a conspiracy. Just that admission by the Congress, you know, that's huge. That's a huge thing. Well, it's, it's not a huge thing that is of any value in recapturing the country from the current ruling oligarchy. Mm. So Michael Lerner said oligarchy? last night. Yeah. Huh? That's what Michael Lerner said last night. I, I don't agree with that. Yeah. What is Michael Lerner said? It's... agree with Mark, but that Thompson said. I think the event itself is irrelevant. I mean, who, what head of state has changed anything as long as there's been American heads of state? But the way it happened, I mean, for everybody who doesn't People here actually think Oswald, acting alone, shot Kennedy with a lucky shot. So somebody killed him. And anybody that could kill him in Dallas could have killed him in his sleep. You know, he could have been killed quietly and explained. The fact that it was done in broad daylight with pictures and witnesses, and then they said, no, what you saw didn't happen. This happened because we investigated. That's the same thing that happened on 9-11. That's the social condition. They said, we're going to, you will not believe your own. Okay, so in your fantasy, what happened on 9-11? On 9-11, I think demolition charges inside the towers blew them down. Right. I think we're I rest long, my case. I think we're a long way from what I uh, <laughs> <laughs> But you know what? Well, you know, it's all of that. Let me just say a few more words. Uh, you know, we all have beliefs, we all have 
things that we invest in and care about. But what I'm talking about is that there is a level that's absolutely pure and is absolutely real. And what we want to do is to find a way to reach that level. And that level is pure clarity. If you get deeply into it, it's pure bliss. Now, all these other things that, we've, that you've been talking after I finished talking, this are, are, are things that people talk about. Uh, they're not really searching for the real depth of their own real self. And this is, this is what I'm hoping and trying to make clear. That that, it's in every one of us, at the core of our being. But most of us don't know it's there. We can't <coughs> feel it. We don't know how it works because we're busy talking, we're busy doing this. How does this guy do it? And do we like him or don't we? And all this crap goes on. And you don't get in and reach the core of your own being. And that's, that's the only thing that counts ultimately. Can I say something? Because yeah. this is why I brought this up. It seems to me that once one does activate that core of their being, there comes there a tremendous social responsibility. Oh, and, absolutely. Yeah, and so to me, what I'm kind of currently obsessed with is this thing that I'm bringing up that I think was going through Miri and Barron's um, you know, popular movement with psychedelic drugs, that there was, that there was a terrific sense that uh, something was gravely wrong in the, in the whole political structure and social structure in the, in the 1960s, coming out of the 1950s, growing fascism, authoritarianism, and stuff I talked about last time. And that, um, and that I was just bringing it back to that, like the Kennedy assassination seems to be. This is, this is a, 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 to understand that and the effects that follow um, seems to me at the very core of political science these days. I'm not alone in this, and that's just that's why. But I, I think a, a, another way to translate what Myron's saying, uh, because because you know we get into all these these side issues. If we were living in in Iraq right now, we'd be talking about the government there probably instead, you know, and all of those things. But you know, there's a saying that locals always survive empires. And rather than get spun into all of the drama of the empire, Myron's suggesting getting really local, personally local, and then getting local with your family and getting local with yourself, and letting this empire wash over because it's going to wash through like the rest of them. Yeah. I, I, that's, I, don't, I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but sort of detached. The distraction of talking about these things is keeping us from looking inside ourselves and exactly. sourcing that, you know? We're so busy blaming this and that instead of looking into ourselves and finding out our true self and our source and our power. This is again a conversation that came up in the 60s, you know, between the kind of flower power of people turning on versus. I, I flew with uh, Angela Davis once from New York to Chicago, and she, you know, she was so down on what happened with psychedelics in the 60s for precisely that reason. What she felt that society needed was, you know, a student political organization and and uh and Tim and everybody was saying, no, just contemplate and you know, cultivate this harmony. Well I would say at least it's, you know, concerned about something that's important instead of wondering what kind of dog Paris Hilton's carrying this week. You know that's important. <laughs> <laughs> that there there seems to be you know, the the crazier things get there seems to be more and more obsession with, you know, ever more trivial matters of, you know, just gossip. Yeah, I don't think it has to be one or the other. I mean, I, I, what I hear is deep social change will occur when there's deep individual change. Right. And, um, however, while seeking deep individual change, there's no reason why we can't focus on social change as well. You know, I don't think it has to it's be... It's a responsibility of that change. Exactly. So I don't really think it's one thing or the other. I think I think it's both, um, and also something that people who have evolved in that form don't impose upon other people. You know that it's it's a uh, personal decision. But you're, you're saying you're attributing to Leary a political uh, motive that I'm not sure everybody in the world agrees with. You seem to be saying that it was some sort of attempt to fight against the establishment in some way. 
Yeah, very explicitly so. How so? Yeah. How, what, what way is this made explicit? <clears throat> well, it's just, um, I mean, from his whole, I don't know how to answer the question, but psychodynamically, from the very beginning, his battle with the father is one way to answer oh. the question. But then, once he became a, a graduate student and thought of ways that he would apply his understanding of psychology to either clinical issues or to social problems, you know, he began, he began like, his first body of research he did and psycho psychotherapy was to show that psychotherapy worked as well if you took the psychotherapist out of it and just sort of let people interact among themselves. And they, and they kind of generalized this sort of finding. He and Frank, you know, who was his best friend and my teacher and friend for a long time, they thought of, okay, so we can generalize this kind of thing. What they see going on in the larger social body in politics was, again, this kind of authoritarian thing, and everybody's in there with roles and so forth, and, and this is why he was such, why people in universities hate him, hated him and still hate him, <clears throat> because he challenged that whole very structure of the, the person who's the authority, he's the authority. He showed that it didn't really work, he, to his satisfaction, and wanted to, wanted to um, change the whole, the whole dynamic, the whole structure of society in education, in politics, and everything. And, and he thought that, um, you know, LSD, the mushroom psychedelics, were this de-authoritizing agent, if you will, right? <coughs> it depends on how you use them. certainly does depend on how you use them. During your time in Basel, did you have an opportunity to talk to very many people about what motivated them to make that pilgrimage there? Why were people there? Was there, were there any common themes, or was it just, just sort of individuals themselves? Yeah, good question. I, I think that there was this, um, I tried to, sh I thought I was showing that in that last video with the people there. There was something, mm -hmm. we, were all, we were all so awed by our experiences. I mean, if there's one thing in common about the psychedelic mystery, or all religious things, it's the sense of awe. And even if someone was like a, you know, a crazed acid freak or a scientist, they still had this kind of awe, unknowing awe. Not unknowing, but, but awe. But no, I didn't really ask people explicitly that. But it was like a big tribal gathering, wasn't it? We all had something in common. Talk more about Albert and how, what he was saying, how he felt. He was so beautiful. He he was so vigorous and so um, so in that moment of receiving the adulation of all those people for this <coughs> moment. I expected to see this one hundred year old man. He said he got up and he said, "Thank you, no Krishna." I think it might pay too to to go back to, to what he has told us in, in many ways in many of his writings. But you know, uh, when he was young, he was so close to nature. He was very, very open. Uh, he was a very unusual person compared to the rest of us. And uh, this this led to to the work that he did as a chemist as a chemist, and it finally uh, opened the door to LSD. And when he finally discovered LSD, he, he realized that this was reinforcing what he'd experienced as a youngster. So he is a truly spiritual person, and I think that has uh, made a profound contribution in his work and development and everything he's accomplished. Did he make any political comments or have any advice to give from his hundred years of experience? He spoke in German. <laughs> yeah. but it was German. Yeah, we could, we could hear him. <laughs> <laughs> Are they still manufacturing? It's a... <clears throat> if you don't mind, I'm beginning a study of this thing. I'd like to be continuing to correspond with you about this. I have a feeling that there's some material you haven't looked at yet. Oh, I, I have my own theory about 
what happened in 1963. Yeah. I mean, I'm virtually certain I know who did it. Would you mind sharing that? Oswald pulled the trigger, didn't I? Well, Oswald pulled the The interesting thing is not killing Kennedy. As you point out, Kennedy's not hard to kill. The hard thing to do was to kill Oswald. The hard thing to do was to kill Oswald. And, right? I mean, the interesting figure there is Ruby, not Oswald. Right. Right, because that's what you have to do after you kill a leader. You have to make sure you don't get caught, which means you have to kill the trigger man. Okay, so who had the capacity to get somebody into that police station? Who had a strong motivation to kill Kennedy? And who staffed a Warren Commission report and therefore had an opportunity to run the cover-up? No, I know. No. No. The staff of the Warren Commission was drawn from the FBI. And unlike the CIA, which was broken up substantially in 74, right? There were a lot of CIA guys who got driven out into the cold. Somebody would have talked. The Bureau was never denazified. So it seems to me Hoover had motive, means, and opportunity. We know things he did that were at least that have seen. Yeah. Um, it all makes perfect sense. And yeah, it would have been nice if that had come out. But in fact, as I say, we already know plenty about the Bureau to fuel hostility to, to it without pinning the Kennedy assassination. I mean, I'd love to do it. Yes, this is but like, fine. you know, get over it. Yeah, I'm worried about Karl Rove and George Bush, not Jay Cooper. <laughs> Jay Cooper's right. fucking dead. Right, right. Yeah. And the thing about changing the federal building's name. The FBI, the Cooper building's name, yeah. yeah. Really? Yeah. I'd rather you not provide an institution to change the name of the building. The history has discredited him at this point. And it will continue to, I'm sure. So, any more questions? Yeah? Um, you all, uh, Thank you. stick around. Thank you. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Well, now you know what a typical salon was like at Kathleen's in Venice Beach during the eight-plus years when she hosted a monthly potluck dinner for the Albert Hoffman Foundation. Until I previewed this tape the other day, I had uh, completely forgotten about how it ended with the discussion of the Kennedy murder and the follow-up about the hit on Oswald. What I didn't bring up that evening, though, is a phone call that I received an hour or so after Oswald was murdered by Jack Ruby. I was in my final year at the University of Notre Dame at the time, and on the other end of the phone was my mentor, Ray Bell, who was uh, calling from his home in Texas. Now, I'll make this short, uh, but since one of the main reasons that I'm doing these podcasts is uh, so that my grandchildren are going to be able to uh, hear a few of my stories once they're old enough, and uh, of course by then I'm either going to be dead and gone or can no longer remember them, (laughs) both of which probably will most likely take place long before I'm ready. Anyway, uh, getting back to my phone call from Texas, I already knew quite a bit about Jack Ruby because uh, both Ray and his wife had worked for him just after World War II. They handled the uh, photo concession at the clubs that Jack was managing at the time, and they knew him quite well and uh, had told me uh, quite a number of stories about the wild times they had in Dallas just after the war. But what Ray was calling to tell me on that November morning was that I should never, as in never, believe that Jack Ruby killed Oswald for any reason other than that his mob bosses had ordered him to. I could go on, but uh, this really isn't the place for it. However, if you're interested in this uh, story, one of the places to not miss is a series of YouTube video interviews with the woman who, at the time of the Kennedy murder, was Lyndon Johnson's mistress. And uh, two of the names that you'll hear her mention as to uh, having been at that infamous party in Dallas on the night before the assassination, uh, well, two of the people who were in that room together were good old cross-dressing J. Edgar Hoover and none other than Jack Ruby. There's uh, obviously a lot more to the story, but that's all I want to say about it. So you're on your own now if you're interested in these uh, never-to-be-answered questions. Now, getting back to the recording that we just listened to, I was uh, interested in uh, hearing once again Robert Forte's comments about Dallas, Texas being a dividing line between the culture and the counterculture. 
And you know what he's talking about if you've seen the documentary titled Confessions of an Ecstasy Advocate, in which I tell some of the stories about the time during which MDMA, or ecstasy, left the healing couches of the West Coast and first hit the streets in a big way in Dallas, Texas, of all places. It was a strange time and a strange place. And I've posted a link to that documentary at the top of our program notes blog if you're interested. And as you know, you can get there via www.psychedelicsalon.us. Now, uh, for just a second here, I I don't want you to take me literally. Instead, uh, just think of this as a fable. But isn't it interesting that Dallas, the city in which many people think was the site of the loss of innocence for the baby boomers due to the assassination of Kennedy... Well, this is the same city in which MDMA first reached the masses. I can just see the movie title now, How the Love Drug Healed Dallas. (laughs) In a way, it's almost as if the spirit of Dallas was trying to mend its karma for the Kennedy crime. In fact, uh, I'm going to sign off for now and uh, give that some more thought myself. Of all the places for MDMA to hit the streets, uh, well, Dallas is probably the most unlikely. Yet, thanks to a chance encounter between Timothy Leary and a middle-aged salesman from Dallas, Ecstasy left the safe confines of the West Coast therapists and landed on the dance floor at the Stark Club. For uh, some of us, life would never again be the same. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. (laughs) 